Sunday and looked at the challenges from 2 Corinthians 4, of first things first in Christian service. Um, there were two sessions yesterday, actually, in different churches. Uh, first things first in Christian worship at the church on the way. We looked at 1 Timothy 2. And uh, last night, if you were here, we looked at first things first in the Christian life at what Paul has to say in Colossians. So we have two sessions left um, this evening on Christian fellowship from Acts 15, which we're going to turn to in a moment. And then tomorrow, we're going to look at Christian growth, particularly from the uh, really dramatic story in Nehemiah chapter 8, as God's people opened the book of the law. So uh, we hope you can be here tomorrow as well. Um, Just to reinforce, there's some fantastic books from 10 of those as you go out on your left. On your right, there are various books from Keswick Resources, and uh, I'd like just to encourage you to have a look at them. One table, they're all for five pounds. There are books such as this. This is the Peter Lewis book, Becoming Christ-like, which is a fantastic uh, uh, theme and a lovely uh, set of uh, chapters all about how we become like Christ. And on the right-hand side, the table with the food for the journey. These are the small booklets, uh, 30-day devotional readings. They're repurposed teaching from Keswick over the years on different Bible books. So I saw someone pick up Hebrews and say they've never understood Hebrews uh, yesterday. And if that's you, you might like to have a look at uh, Charles Price uh, with just daily thoughts all the way through Hebrews. Um, For £2.50, they're a fantastic bargain, less than... uh, cappuccino, at least less than a cappuccino in Oxford. I don't know what it's like in in Bradford. Well, um, that's enough on books. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. If you have a Bible with you, please do turn to that passage. Um, Actually, Luke has put the whole chapter together in a way which uh, is significant. It it, it runs together as a whole chapter, but we're only going to read up to uh, verse 21, although the verses which follow are integral, and we'll touch on those briefly. So Acts 15, and we begin with verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This, made, this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. 
The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Not long ago, I spoke with a friend of mine who had just taken her driving test. Uh, She found it quite a demanding experience, and she's told us a little about what happened. In fact, at one point in the driving test, uh, she was doing the hill start. Do you remember the hill start? And um, it was a difficult moment. She was trying to select second gear as she moved off. And she obviously had an examiner who had a ministry of encouragement because he sat next to her with his clipboard and he looked over his uh, glasses as she was trying to select second gear and he said to her, don't worry, love, they're all in the same box. All you've got to do is sort them out. And um, she did actually pass, but uh, when she came back and told us that little phrase, they're all in the same box, all you've got to do is sort them out, it struck me that that had a kind of Pauline ring about it. Because if you know what Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he said, there is one God, there's one Father, there's one Lord Jesus Christ, there's one Holy Spirit, there's one faith, one baptism, one hope. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words, if you belong to the one Father, the one Lord Jesus, and the one Holy Spirit, all you've got to do is sort them out. And he spends a lot of time in all of his letters encouraging Christians how they should sustain their fellowship as belonging to the one family. Now, every Christian church has all kinds of differences, of course. Uh, Sometimes these are cultural, sometimes we're a mix of ethnic and national backgrounds, rather like the school, Bradford School. Uh, Sometimes we're a a mix of personalities and temperaments, maybe different classes, different backgrounds, different Christian experiences. Every church has that kind of diversity and difference. There is a story, however, of uh, a church leader who was asked about his congregation, and I think this is probably true universally. Um, A person went up to the pastor and said, uh, is your church, does it have an active congregation? And he said, yes, they're very active. Half of them are working with me, and half of them are working against me. (laughs) And uh, the reason for that, uh, the reason why um, it provokes our laughter is, sadly, it is true. Actually, in almost every congregation, there are difficulties related to differences, which lead then to divisions. And indeed, division is one of Satan's strategies designed to hinder the growth of the gospel, to hinder the effective work of a local church. 
Uh, for many years, as I mentioned on Saturday night, I worked uh, with IFES in, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet territories. And it was one of the saddest things that the evangelical community, which in that part of the world is relatively small, facing fairly hostile uh, uh, opposition, both during the communist period and in the post-communist period, and yet unable really to work together. Pentecostals would have nothing to do with Baptists. Brethren were suspicious of Presbyterians, and so it went on. Sometimes these divisions have hindered the work of God. Well, Acts 15 signals a point where the division which occurred there could well have halted the advance of the gospel, which Luke records in Acts. He often gives us the markers, as you know, through the Acts of the Apostles, of the way in which the church was growing. In fact, he usually says the word of God was growing. The gospel was growing. We'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow night when we look at God's word in Nehemiah 8. Well, it was making good progress. But here, in Acts 15, we encounter a very significant turning point. It focused on two simple issues, but profound ones. A theological issue. How is a person saved and brought into the Christian community? And then there was a practical issue. How can Christians from different backgrounds learn to live together? And I hope as you look at those two questions on the screen, you'll agree that they are very contemporary issues for the Church of God here in Bradford and indeed around the world. So Acts 15 is a great passage to underline first things first in Christian fellowship. And we'll answer those two questions as we see. Three simple things to go through the chapter. The first is to mention the challenge of growth. Let me give you the story very briefly. First of all, there was the promise. Do you remember one of the great blessings of the gospel, which Peter proclaimed in his Pentecost sermon, which we'll remember next Sunday if you're in, uh, uh, following the church calendar, Pentecost Sunday. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That was the promise. Um, now, 20 years had passed since Peter proclaimed the gospel was for everybody. Gentiles were gradually now coming to faith in Christ, first in their ones and twos, but eventually quite large numbers of people, Gentiles, were coming to believe in Jesus. Well, that leads to the second thing, that's the result. Um, Just in the previous chapter, chapter 14 and verse 27, Paul and Barnabas uh, report back to the church in Antioch. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So Antioch was a church made up of all kinds of people, quite a diverse mix of believers from Jewish and from Gentile backgrounds. That was the result. Not only in Antioch, actually Gentiles were flooding into the churches in other cities, especially in southern Galatia, and that raised some urgent questions in people's minds. Particularly back in the mother church in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians became very concerned about it. They were concerned that Gentiles were becoming Christians but weren't submitting to the law of Moses. So there's the third thing in this little introduction, the problem. In city after city, as Gentiles became Christians, they were not becoming Jews. Uh, 
So verse 1 of chapter 15 describes this influential pressure group within that Jerusalem church. They sent a delegation to try and address what for them was becoming a serious issue. Verse 1, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So that was the issue that Luke now addresses here in the middle of the story of the growth of the church. That was the problem. Now, it's important to understand why it is such a critical turning point when you think about the story. The issue was how are believers brought into God's family? The suggestion was being made by these guys coming from Jerusalem that if there was no circumcision, the Jewish practice, there could be no salvation. Faith in Jesus was not enough. So in essence, it was a big challenge to the gospel. It wasn't just a slightly different cultural emphasis. This struck right at the heart of that mission of the apostles to bring the gospel to all people. It was a potential division in the church that would cease, that would halt the forward movement of the gospel to all nations. So you'll see the response in verse 2, if you have your Bible. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Now, in a moment, we'll see that there are differences in churches where we do often have to agree to disagree. That uh, may often be necessary. But Paul could see that anything which implied that Jesus' work was not enough would be a serious, serious error. And so he strenuously opposed what they were saying. And it's no wonder if you read on in chapter 15, uh, they sent the letter after it had all been resolved, it shows that some of those Antioch believers were really disturbed by the message that had come down from Jerusalem. And that kind of teaching that you need Jesus plus something else that you have to do, that always unsettles Christian believers. Anything which says you have to add to what Christ has done begins to cast doubt on your own Christian assurance. Have I done enough? Is God going to accept me? I know Jesus has done this, but is there more I must contribute? We saw this last night in Colossians. Well, in verse 2, we see that there was a willingness to confront this particular challenge. And it was clear that a very full and open debate had to take place. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Well, as I've already mentioned, this is a very, very significant issue in our culture as well. Uh, These days, people are increasingly tolerant, aren't they? Um, I, I uh, quoted uh, the other night Mike Gatting, the um, English, former English cricket captain, who liked to keep all his options open. And people in our culture don't mind if you're a Christian, but don't, please don't absolutize it. Please don't say Jesus is the savior of the whole world. And that kind of tolerant spirit can make it very difficult for us to stand up for the truth of the gospel in our plural context. 
It's also important, though, to see how they were received when they came up to Jerusalem. It was a very warm welcome. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to which they reported everything God had done through them. So here in this very conservative church in Jerusalem, they actually welcomed what the the believers whom they saw as liberal believers coming up uh, to talk about this issue. Um, When I read that and and thought about uh, how our churches respond to difficulty, um, very often Um, There isn't that kind of spirit, is there? Um, If only disagreements in our churches could be dealt with in this kind of spirit. I've sometimes been in church meetings in in a church uh, to which I belonged some while ago. And when you look at the faces, you can tell this is war. You know, it's, it's going to be a difficult night. In fact, I recently read an article in the Baptist Times about a church meeting. And uh, two members of the church actually came to blows in the middle of the meeting. And one of them was knocked out. And so they had to call for an ambulance. And uh, he was, he was uh, carried off um, in the ambulance. And the person who was writing this story about what had happened wondered what the record was like in the minutes of the church meeting. And he also wondered about the conversation the ambulance crew would have had as they left the Baptist church. Well, actually, it's not just Baptists. It's not. It's actually very common amongst God's people that when there is a disagreement, the capacity to work hard in a brotherly and sisterly way to resolve these issues is very often missing. So let's notice the uh, open welcome that these believers received. I was in um, the church where I served for for many years. Um, At a certain point, suddenly we started getting anonymous letters from members, as far as we could tell, from within the congregation pointing out issues, pointing out problems with particular people. And we put them all in the bin. And we said publicly, they're all going in the bin. This is not the way to operate in Christian fellowship. There must be a spirit which acknowledges that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord and we want to approach those issues in a way which is godly. We'll come to that as I finish in just a minute. There's the introduction. So secondly, the priority of the gospel And as you look at verses 6 and 7, you see that there was a great deal of discussion about this problem. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And there were a sequence of speakers, and they gave powerful evidence why Gentile believers should be welcomed in to the Christian family. Um, There are three things to mention. There isn't uh, long tonight. I want to be quite quick in mentioning them, but you can read it uh, as you go through. The first thing that comes out is it was God's initiative that Gentiles should come to faith in Jesus. Peter begins, verse 7, by stressing that the Gentile mission was something that God himself had begun. That's what Peter proclaimed, do you remember, in Acts chapter 2. This was God's clear purpose. And there it is, just to summarize, verses 7, 8, and 9. God made the choice. God has accepted them. God makes no distinction between different people. God has purified their hearts. So Peter was very passionate that everyone, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their culture, Jew or Gentile alike, men or women, whatever their economic status, by God's grace, anyone can come into God's family through trusting Jesus. 
That's really important we sustain that emphasis in our world and in a city like Bradford. Then in verse 12, Barnabas and Paul came up behind, reinforced this witness to God's initiative. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So that's the first thing. And then, secondly, they underlined God's acceptance. This was the witness, actually, of the scriptures and the apostles. Uh, Verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. So he's making the same uh, point. Um, If they've received the Holy Spirit, God has accepted them. He's brought them in. And it's an intriguing little twist in verse 11. Peter doesn't say, the Gentiles are saved just like us Jews. He turns it round. He says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Jew and Gentile alike. No discrimination. No distinction. Whoever you are, by the grace of God, you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is uh, something that we we ought to rejoice in more and more in a world where there are so many fracture lines. Um, There was a period when people thought globalization would be removing all the barriers. You know, we've got the Internet, we've got multiculturalism, we've got uh, international travel. But no, I read a journalist last week who said we are now living in the age of the wall yet again. Walls with Donald Trump. Um, in Mexico, uh, the Brits are building the, what's called the Great Wall of Calais. Uh, Hungary is putting up fences. And it's not just those physical walls. It's the barriers. It's the fracture lines which are occurring in our society. And so the church should be the one place, the one new society, where God's family, across all these divisions and distinctions, demonstrates that there is no discrimination, only Faith in Jesus Christ, grace through him. And that leads to the third thing in this chapter, and that is God's purpose. Uh, James is the last speaker, and they would have listened to him very, very carefully because he was a, a significant Jewish Christian leader. And it's worth noting what he says in verse 14. Uh, Simon, that's, that's Peter's Jewish name, Simeon, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. Now, if you were in Jerusalem and you were a Jewish Christian, that would have been a buzzword you would have immediately recognized, a people for himself. That, of course, was right through the Old Testament. You will be my people, God says. And so now James is applying it in a way which would include all of the Gentiles, other nations. It's not just the elite Jewish group. It is All Gentiles, all nations, God has placed his name on them as well. And if you read that in detail, verse 15, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. Even the Old Testament actually said this. If only they had eyes to see, God's purpose was for every family on earth to be blessed through his promise to Abraham. Well, that's the force of the presentation Uh, The witness of the apostles to God's initiative, it was God's idea from the very beginning. The witness of the Spirit, who is now at work in the Gentiles. 
and the witness of the prophets. This has been God's purpose from the very beginning. And so James verse 19 says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. No discrimination. And it was a very significant turning point in the whole story of how the church was to develop. Now they agreed, Jew and Gentile, whatever your background, if it is by God's grace you put faith in Jesus Christ, that is enough. You belong to the one family. I said a moment ago, um, in this fractured world, if we truly lived like this, both in our congregations or across congregations or indeed across the global Christian family, then it would have a transformative effect. It would be a very powerful witness to the truth of the gospel. Um, I always remember during uh, the Balkan Wars uh, in former Yugoslavia, I was working with uh, student groups in IFES, and they held a conference, um, and at the beginning of the conference, for all the students coming across from the Balkans, they did something very deliberate. Um, they asked for representatives from each of the nations, so a Serb, a Croat, an Albanian, a Kosovan, to come to the platform. And without introduction, they linked arms and they sang the song, Bind Us Together, Lord. I don't know if you know that simple chorus. Bind us together, Lord. There is only one God. There is only one king. There is only one body. That is why we sing, bind us together, Lord. This is nations that were at war, and it was a deliberate effort to establish that kind of solidarity as God's people. It was much the same, actually. I have many good friends in Rwanda and Burundi, and during the genocide, you remember the Hutu and Tutsi genocide in those countries, it was fantastic that it was Christian believers who categorically refused to take sides on the ethnic uh, uh, division of Hutu and Tutsi. Many of them lost their lives because they put their identity with Jesus and their, their belonging with fellow believers ahead of that ethnic division. They lost their lives, but it was a very courageous witness to the reality of the gospel. In fact, uh, Christian students who I know um, in in several places in Burundi uh, became a model of reconciliation. The the government asked Christian students to travel around the country to give their testimony in order to build cohesion across uh, ethnic divisions. The, The Lord's people have to work hard to sustain This unity, or Paul puts it, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Well, that leads to the final thing I wanted to mention, and that is the uh, the closing couple of verses, the foundation of fellowship. After all of those speeches where they made that absolute conviction clear, James then summarizes, and uh, that met with the approval of everyone. It was a a twofold decision. It was verse 19 and 20. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What he's saying is two things. First of all, no unnecessary barriers. We should not make it difficult. There are no entrance conditions 
for coming into the family of God. As we've already said, there's nothing further required of people, no religious rituals, no ceremonies, only faith in Jesus Christ. That's enough. That's the foundation for entering into the family of God and enjoying fellowship. And again, you'll notice uh, uh, all of the signs in those verses of the brotherly acceptance. Those who originally pressed this issue went down and expressed uh, their agreement. Then the apostles and elders, this is verse 22, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent them off and they went down, even those who previously had taken the opposite point of view and established fellowship with those believers. It certainly would have been a costly decision, a courageous decision, actually, because this would put them into dispute with the Jews, of course. They were inviting persecution in Jerusalem from unbelieving Jews by taking this view that Gentiles, too, can be members of God's family. And we know that that happened. But they were ready for that persecution and that cost because they were convinced of these gospel priorities. So no unnecessary barriers. And I I know this is very obvious, but we have to keep saying it, I think, to one another. Ask about our own churches, our own attitudes. Are there any unnecessary barriers between fellow Christians? Is there any exclusiveness? Are there any walls which prevent fellowship across ethnicities or cultures or across class or across background, how do we demonstrate that eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace? Because sometimes um, we are not the best. Uh, You know, we may, well, let me give you a very simple illustration. I once uh, had to preach in Bulgaria, and uh, it was in the 1980s, and no one had told me that at that point in Bulgaria, they'd reversed the usual cultural signals for yes and no. I don't know if you were aware of that, but that is no, and that is yes. And it was really unfortunate, because I began to preach, and I watched some guys at the back begin to go like this as I was speaking. And uh, so I thought, I need to inject a bit more passion. So I spoke a bit, bit, with a bit more energy and the heads began to shake even more. Now, if we did it in our culture, if we said no and yes, we're giving two conflicting signals at the same time. And I fear sometimes, I speak from the Keswick tradition, which has the banner headline, All One in Christ Jesus, that we may rehearse that as our belief, we are all one in Christ Jesus. But the way we often behave gives a contradictory signal. And I've already made reference to that previously. Our witness to the gospel of reconciliation will only be credible if we truly demonstrate this as a Christian community. No unnecessary barriers. The gospel which is for all. Um, John White wrote a lovely sentence about this in one of his books. Christ died that humans of every type be reconciled to God and to one another. The genius of Christianity is that it makes possible ongoing fellowship between people who could not otherwise tolerate, let alone enjoy one another. In a world divided by class, commerce, race, education, politics, the generation gap, and a million clashing interests, Christ alone can make incompatibles mesh. That is 
the great joy of the gospel. No unnecessary barriers. And the final thing, no unnecessary offense. The second part of the decision which James announces there wasn't theological. It was simply a practical recommendation to those churches. It represented a recommendation that would enable them in those early days, especially to be able to live together in harmony. Uh, In verse 20, uh, and it's repeated in verse 29, these practical recommendations are there. In many of the churches, uh, Gentile Christians had to live alongside the Jewish Christians. And not all Jewish believers were quite as emancipated as Paul and Peter were at that stage. For centuries, they'd followed food laws, which you read all about in the Old Testament. And they'd also been told to avoid contact with Gentiles. And now they were sitting down and breaking bread together. So you need to think, wow, that was a very big shift for them to have to cope with. So James wisely proposes that Gentile believers need to be sensitive to another believer's conscience, particularly someone from a Jewish background. Don't create unnecessary offense in Christian fellowship. It's a very big subject, actually, and all I'd like to say um, at this point as we draw to a close is that there is in the Bible something called the doctrine of difference. And we don't talk enough about it, in my view. The doctrine of difference is a doctrine in the New Testament which shows that Christians will disagree on certain things but can still enjoy fellowship. Now, they don't disagree about the gospel. The big thing we've been seeing all evening from this passage is that Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world. It is by trusting in Jesus' work that we become members of the family. There is no compromise over that issue, and that was the reason for the debate in Acts 15. But there are many other issues where Christians will have different points of view and they must learn, by God's grace, to still enjoy fellowship even if they disagree. The doctrine of difference is spelled out most clearly in Romans 14 and 15 and that is for another day, not for now. But it's very important, I think, that we learn to uh, express fellowship which has those two qualities, no unnecessary barriers and no unnecessary offence. Well, that's why this chapter, I think, is so critical, first things first, in Christian fellowship. It defines what unites us, and it allows us to know how we handle the disagreements which we might encounter. And I summarize it uh, with these three words. First, priority. We belong to Jesus Christ. We need to be clear about what matters. First things first. What are the gospel priorities? And this passage has told us, by grace, you are saved through faith. There can be no compromise there. But once our shared commitment is around that focus, then we realize there should be no discrimination. There should be no division if we're united in Jesus Christ. There's a lovely story you might have heard from uh, Admiral Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, There were two people in his fleet, a man called Admiral Collinwood and a captain on the same ship, Captain Rotherham, who could not get on with each other. Whatever happened, they were always against each other. So Nelson called these two men to his ship and he joined their hands together and then he pointed out the French ships on the horizon and he said to them, there is the enemy. And he sent them back to their ship. Uh, Apparently they were 
They were then rebuked sufficiently to know, yes, we are on the same side. We are working together. Um, That's the priority. Belonging to Christ, belonging to God's people. That leads to harmony. In the light of the priority of the gospel, we want to live together without compromising the gospel, but not with sustained conflicts between different groups or different uh, uh, factions, people offended by each other, but with the ability to live together in harmonious fellowship. Again, I commend to you what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and also Romans 14 and 15 about the doctrine of difference, how we live together. And the third thing to notice, final verse I'm going to mention, is growth. What's so interesting in Luke's story is that in the next chapter, chapter 16, further growth happened. In other words, this was handled so well, this fracture which could have blown apart the Christian community was handled so well that more growth happened. Chapter 16 and verses 4 and 5. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decision reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. In other words, churches which are like this are actually attractive to people. It says at the end of Acts 2 that they grew in numbers day by day because people were drawn to this kind of new community. Um, When people feel the alienation of this society and the the breakdown in families, the fracture lines between ethnic groups, the differences and divisions over Brexit or whatever it might be, they are drawn to a community which demonstrates the reconciling power of the gospel. And so it was here. So as the driving examiner said to my friend, we're all in the same box. All we've got to do is sort it out. Let's pray together. Father, what we've looked at this evening in many senses is such a fundamental and obvious point. But we know it is one of the areas where sometimes our Christian witness is given the lie. We talk about being reconciled to God and being reconciled to one another. But over the years we fracture more and more into multiple denominations and groups, and even the individual groups also fracture still further. And so we do repent, Lord, of the wrong attitudes that we might have had. Maybe even as we've spent these few minutes looking at this chapter, some of us have thought about divisions in our own church or disagreements with somebody which we really need to put right. We thank you, Lord, that... The passage reminds us that there is no compromise over the truth of the gospel and that we're united precisely because of the one Lord Jesus Christ and the one Holy Spirit and the one Father and the one family. We pray that we may never compromise on the essentials of the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you this is a message for the whole world. We pray that you will help us to express this lovely solidarity more and more in our local congregations, at events like this where we draw together from different churches, but also as we pray for your church worldwide. And this evening we especially remember our believers in Indonesia, fellow believers who've suffered from these uh, uh, bombings. 
we could repeat this in many other places. In Nigeria, the same has happened. In the Central African Republic, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in China. We know that there are 200 million Christians like us suffering direct and hostile persecution. We belong to them. They belong to us. We all belong to you in the family. We pray, Lord, for your blessing upon them. So in all of these ways, Lord, help us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace for the glory of Christ and for the stronger witness of our churches to the reconciling power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.